Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Today we're talking about Spin by Robert Charles Wilson. This is a rather recent book. It won the Hugo and Nebula Awards. It's really interesting. And it's a little different than some of the other books that we've dealt with. Yet it has some of the most profound implications for political and social concepts. And so let's begin by asking what you found of it so far. What, what, what do you think, what is the basic premise of the book? What's going on? Um, all the stars have disappeared and there's a, like, the Earth's, like, encapsulated this little time warp where time on Earth passes slower than it does in the universe. Yeah, that's right. So there is a shield or something around the Earth and it appeared and it's an extraterrestrial of origin and that this shield that appeared around the Earth blocks out the stars. And its main purpose seems to be to slow down time so that the time that's going on on, on the planet Earth inside the shield is much, 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 much slower than the time that's going on in the rest of the galaxy or outside the shield. So the Earth is aging in each month, basically, you know, hundreds and thousands, millions of, of years in galactic time, the inches. So basically, in, in the span of one lifetime, <clears throat> you're able to see the um, the evolution of the entire sun from the point where it's a normal the way it is now to the point where it becomes a red giant. So it's a very interesting idea, but it, it looks sort of goofy from the perspective of of real science. I mean, why would you think of, you know, who would put a shield on the earth to slow you down? And what's the purpose of something like that? It becomes very, you know, different at the end by the time you get to the end of the novel. Now, for this first day, you only have to have read the first half of the novel. And by Thursday, we're going to have read the entire thing. But I think when you see it, that the thing becomes much, much more profound when you finally get to the end and find out, you know, what's all this going on with the with the shield. And when I first read it, I must admit the first thing I said was, a shield, where is that going? Where is this shield going? What, how is he going to... Because it's so different than so many things that you see else in science fiction. But it turns out to be really interesting and, you know, who knows? In the far future, perhaps plausible idea. But again, we don't want to get to the end of the novel where everything sort of ties together. But in the beginning, we... We look for the initial political responses that we would expect from a novel like this. Where is the politics in this novel? By the end, we're going to be asking much different... On Thursday, we're going to be asking much different political and social questions than we are asking today. And it will reflect a lot about how we think of society today as compared to how we will envision society in the future. But... For today, the real-world politics of spin are very relevant to us. <clears throat> what did, did anyone see anything in particular that was unusual about spin, that was political? or 
Remember, you're all going to bring in your own pieces on Thursday, that your, your own favorite uh, paragraphs. What else, before I sort of read a paragra paragraph and ask for comments, did anyone else have any thoughts about spin? Well, I did think it was interesting that in the wake of um, what happened, a lot of people were scared into religion as an answer. Isn't that interesting? And um, they were just kind of, I mean, it wasn't really an answer to anything. It was just like a blind faith. People were scared into religion when something unusual happened. You know what's been very interesting? Uh, for a long while, I've taken a break from it for a little while, but for a long while, uh, three and a half years, I was a cantor at a, uh, one of the largest Catholic churches here in, in Atlanta. Big, big venue in terms of the size of the church. Reverb was really great. And I really liked doing you know, high-end classical singing, solo pieces uh, in that setting. And after 9-1-1, it was a very interesting thing. I was there, and the, the talk among the clergy were fascinating. Immediately after 9-1-1, the first, first few days after 9-1-1, their weekday masses, which normally were populated by 10, 20 people, something like that, were overwhelming. They had to move them into the large sanctuary. Everybody was going to church. <laughs> I mean, they were packing them wall to wall. These were weekday masses where basically everyone was just, you know, normally you don't go. They show up on once a Sunday and things like that. They were packing them in. I mean, they had to move everything to the big church, and even then it was packed in. And in the Sunday masses, it was, you know, more than overflowing. People were just going to religion. But what other kind of, but in, in terms of the spin, what kind of religions were they going to when the, when the, when the stars turned off? Like cultish religions started. Cultish. Just, like followings where it ended up where people would argue that there was a basis for faith, but a lot of times it was just kind of like rampant. Cultish type of stuff. Wild, weird religions. Religions that are not mainstream. It's interesting. There's one question you want to ask is how many of these cultish type religions are out there anyway? And during these times when things get strained with new information coming into the public, how many of these cults blossom into greater membership versus blossom into greater visibility, but it's the same membership? I think what you'll often find with cults is that their visibility becomes much greater during these strained times when new information enters the public realm. But their membership does not increase their visibility increases. People look at them and poke at them, and you know, and, and perhaps their activities become more bizarre during those strange times. But clearly, the rest of the world, or at least uh, you know, the media, begins to focus more on the activities of these wild groups, whereas in normal times, people ignore these wild groups. I mean, it's very interesting that cults are a very strange group. They're mostly ignored. But when new information comes out into the public, the media seems to focus on them. So the real question we want to ask is, when these cults, these strange religions come out, you know, what's actually driving it? If the cults themselves are not changing, 
in terms of major... I mean, they're suddenly not becoming Billy Graham crusades with hundreds of thousands of people in superdomes. They're just the same old, you know, 10 members, 20 members, something like that, as they always were. But suddenly visibility becomes much greater and people start focusing on them. The, The question is, what is happening to society when these times, when the general times change, that they start focusing their attention on these cults? And then perhaps what is happening to the cults that their activities themselves become more bizarre, more crazy? What were some of the activities of the cults or one of the cults that was, uh, you know, that was uh, discussed in spin? Well, near like the end, you get um, one of the cults that's trying to breed a red cow (laughs) to bring on the apocalypse. Yeah, that was really crazy. They were trying to bring a, breed a red cow and they were doing some illegal stuff with regard to um, keeping cows that had diseases in order to try to get this red cow and hide this from the authorities and and so on like that. They were trying to do something like that. Now that type of thing, getting a red cow, a special red cow, that wouldn't have been so strange back in Moses' day when they had, you know, very primitive people crossing the Sinai trying to get to the Promised Land. But in today's day and age, it's sort of like <laughs> wild. And... And they did some strange things, these cults. They basically kept their members cloistered, essentially imprisoned, informationally deprived, which is standard for cults. That's how they manipulate the people. And ultimately, you know, under the point of a gun, uh, coerced. Did some intelligent people join the cult? Who? Yeah, yeah, she was very intelligent. Yeah, she was very intelligent. She got married to a a cult member who believed in the uh, religious stuff to the very end, despite all logic. All right, so the, the emergence of the visible emergence, whether there's, whether not necessarily more members, but the more visible emergence of strange groups in the society, cults, that during times of, of, of new things, change, new information, things like that. What else? What else is sort of odd or interesting in a social way? Well, let me look at a paragraph. Let's look at a paragraph. Let me read a paragraph. Let's go to page... Now, we have a little bit of a difficulty here. I have the hardback version, and you have the soft cover. So, let's go. On my book, it's page 23, and it's... uh, The chapters are not numbered, but it says, Coming of Age in Boiling Water. Page 18. Is yours page 18? Oh, you do? What, what do you have, Pilot? Um, in the beginning, from people younger than me have asked me to, um, like, down where it says the frog will be dead before he knows there's a problem. Uh, let me see. Let me see your, your version here. 
Oh, you started right in the beginning of the... I was looking for the words, in the beginning. Yeah, you were just meant in the beginning of the chapter. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Why don't you read that section? Okay. People younger than me have asked me, why didn't you panic? Why didn't anyone panic? Why was there no looting, riot, no rioting? Why did your generation um, acquiesce? Why did you all slide into the spin without a murmur of protest? That was acquiesce. Acquiesce. Oh. Sometimes I say because terrible things did happen. Sometimes I say, but we didn't understand and what could we have done about it. And sometimes I cite the parable of the frog. Drop a frog into boiling water and it'll jump out. Drop a frog into a pot of pleasantly warm water. Stoke the fire slowly and the frog will be dead before he knows there's a problem. Isn't, <clears throat> isn't that interesting? Drop a frog into boiling water and he'll jump out. Drop a frog into a pot of pleasantly warm water, stoke the fire slowly, and the frog will be dead before he knows there's a problem. Isn't that interesting? We're facing some of that today with uh, what, what issues? Global warming. Global warming. Another. Yeah. What's that? Quite literally. Quite literally, yeah, quite literally. It's changing slowly, and the people are having a tough time sort of accepting the reality, and politicians are having a tough time. But by the time it gets hot enough, the people will realize something's really wrong. It's too late, and we're cooking. What did you think about this passage? You wrote the pa- you picked the passage. What was about it that was interesting? Well, I think, um, like what you said, that actually happens with uh, a lot of events, like with um, 9-11, before 9-11, there was terrorist activity abroad and um, everywhere, but we kind of ignored it until it, you know, happened. We didn't think it was going to happen here, but it did. Mm. And um, we ignored it till it got out of control. Mm. So I think that happens with everything, you know. We just ignore it till it gets out of control. Quite a human response. Remember the sinking of the Titanic. The people on the Titanic after the the ship ran into the iceberg basically did the same thing they did they were they kept on dancing they kept on writing their lecture notes preparing for their the lectures in new york and even though it was within you know a short time going to be sunk yeah people basically keep on doing what they're doing if you catch a chicken and you're going to slaughter the chicken one of the things i noticed when i was in africa when i was slaughtering my First chicken. You captured the chicken. I'm a vegetarian now, but at the time I admit I ate chickens. And when you're about to slaughter the chicken, the chicken knows it's been caught. And the chicken knows things are not the best. I mean, it's been put in a place. The first thing it does is go down and starts pecking on the ground. Even when there's nothing to peck at, it can be on a cement floor. It just starts pecking at the ground, pretending that everything is normal. Just <laughs> like. And if you're in a inner city in a bad neighborhood and you're being followed by some gang members you, you try to walk normally <laughs> you try to walk like nothing's wrong but you know the gang members are right behind you and you're going to be jumped pretty soon you got so rather than panic and you know run the heck out of there you often the response is to pretend things are normal it's a very interesting human phenomenon of just waiting and you know, there's the difficulty, too. If someone does know that there's some new information that needs to come out to the public, there's a difficulty also not in getting the public to respond, but in getting the information out in the first place. Because the tremendous lethargy to 
both not believe really new information and not to act on it, even if it's there, until the world's about to come come in, collapse on us. Now, Edward O. Wilson has something that's interesting about this. He has argued that this is a genetically programmed response. It's not that people are bad, but that they're genetically hardwired to think like that. He has argued that people who look in the future in a very myopic way, nearsightedness way, are those who survive, have the genetic evolutionary advantage to survive. You look at what's in front of your face for eating first, then secondly consider your family, thirdly consider your village, and a very distant fourth consider anything that the world may find useful. But the genes of the prophets, the ones who look at the big picture, the wide-angle view, are not the ones that win the Darwinian race. They're the anomalies. The ones who win the Darwinian race and thus have millions of programming, genetic programming behind them, are the ones who are the most selfish. And short-term, short thinking. So it's not so much that you're thinking in terms of centuries of impact based on what you're doing with the environment, be it global warming or whatever, but short-term profits for this quarter right now. Or, or it's not so much that you think that the planet needs to be saved, but that I need to use my SUV in order to go out to get a dozen eggs right now, or my Hummer to go out and get a dozen eggs right now, you know, stopping at five gas stations along the way. So it's, it's short-term thinking on the individual level, and that that short-term thinking was, from an evolutionary perspective, a very great advantage. Don't worry about the future. Just do what you need to do now to get yourself through. Well, that, in the long term, when you have big pictures, when you have new information that, has to, that you want to get out to the public, or you want to get the public to act in some way, or political leaders to act in some way, that means you're up against a genetic storm. You're, not, you're up against genetic hardwiring that just is very difficult to, to break through. So Edward O. Wilson has sort of an interesting take on this. You know, I have a, another passage here uh, on that same page. Well, actually, not on the same page, the very next page. And it relates, so why don't I, why don't I read that one? Mine starts with, and many terrible things did happen. Okay, this is with regard to the spin, the October event. Okay, when the stars blinked out and the shield around the planet rose. And many terrible things did happen. Does everyone see that? As a consequence of that night, though most of them were obscured by media blackouts, news stories traveled like whispers, squeezed through transatlantic fiber-optic cables rather than ricocheted through orbital space, it was almost a week before we learned that a Pakistani Hoft V missile tipped with a nuclear warhead, launched by mistake or miscalculation in the confused first moments of the event, had strayed off course and vaporized an agricultural valley in the Hindu Kush. It was the first nuclear device detonated in war since 1945, and tragic as that event was, even the global paranoia ignited by the loss of telecommunications we were lucky it only happened once. According to some news reports, we nearly lost Tehran, Tel Aviv, and Pyongyang. What's that? What does that paragraph speak to? Politically, socially. Whenever 
a disaster occurs. Speak louder. So. Whenever a disaster occurs, I mean, including like nine eleven, the media just goes crazy, and um, you never actually really hear what's going on because all of the news stations are trying to cover the story, but they all have like little different bits of information, and so mm-hmm. it's hard to put together. And then also, because a lot of times the governments will know that people don't necessarily want to hear the whole truth and that they don't want to tell everything, you aren't getting the whole story anyway. News stories. Part of this, part of this passage is about news stories. It's very interesting. What just happened in Chicago with the Chicago Tribune yesterday? It was sold. About a year ago, they tried to sell themselves off and had a hard time. Now the whole uh, Tribune Publishing has been sold off. They're going to sell off the uh, Chicago Cubs and the whole thing. What's happening to newsprint newspapers all over the country? They're disappearing and becoming just at least like two or three big monopolies. Consolidating, disappearing, being purchased up. It's very hard. My, I, I, I lived through this. My mother was a newspaper reporter, wrote for the various newspapers, including the Jersey Journal for many years and the New York Times for many years. And I always had reporters at my house when I was growing up, reporter parties and people always talking about news. And they lived and died with the, the thrill of reporting the news. It was just the, the vibrancy coming from the group of reporters, which is spectacular, literal. But the interesting thing about it is that that's a past tense. They're gone. The newspapers are just going out of business, one after the other. New York Times is still struggling on. But in most major cities, the dailies have collapsed to just a one or sometimes two papers. And what's happening to those papers? The reporters themselves are very few. The staffs are being cut back. They're basically turning themselves into distributors of, of, of coupons, advertisements and coupons. I remember my wife, she's from Africa a long time ago. But when I brought her here to the United States, we went out to get a copy of the LA Times. And she'd only been here a week. And she was so upset with me. She said, why did you go out and buy... 20, 20 newspapers. Just one will do. We don't need to have a whole stack. And I said, no, I was, you don't understand. This is just one newspaper. It's just thick. And she said, you're joking. This is not, no, that cannot be a newspaper. She was used to newspapers, you know, a quarter of an inch thick at most, Sunday edition. And she saw something that was like two, three inches thick. And I said, no, really, it's it's a one newspaper. And then she sat down with them to say, let me see. And she opened every single page, every single, looked at every single page. And then for the rest of the day, she said, Courtney, we have to rush out to the store. Look, there's a sale, a special sale. It's going to go away in just a few days. If we don't jump on it, it'll go away. And look at this other one. Every single page was a sale and a coupon. Look at this coupon, Courtney. It's only expiring by Wednesday. We must buy so I had to convince her that this is a normal event and that these newspapers were quite regular. It was funny. That was uh, you know, 25, 20-some-odd years ago. And uh, we still joke about it today. The cultural differences uh, are still funny after even after a few decades. 
But uh, the, inter- the interesting thing is that that's, you know, times 20 what's been happening to the rest of the newspapers. They're basically just advertising forums. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, if you look at that as our local paper here, of course, you know, publishes, you know, very little original stuff. It used to publish lots of really original stuff. It once had an expose, for example, about 20 years ago, an an interesting expose of environmental abuse done by the governor's office and the legislature, the state legislature, in which power plants that were put in in mostly southern Georgia, down in LaGrange and Macon, were put in without any type of pollution control. And I'm a pilot, and I used to fly down there. Whenever I flew down to southern Georgia, my wife wouldn't want to go because she didn't want to get anywhere near those power plants because they just obscure everything. So if you're flying in visual flight uh, rules, uh, VFR conditions, when you get down to southern Georgia, even on a bright sunny day, cloudless day, you can't see anything. And I remember one time I was flying down there, and my wife said, how are you flying? I can't see anything. And I said, I'm looking straight down. I'm staying a 1,000 feet over the ground, and I'm just looking. As long as I see trees down there, I'm okay. And then I was using some of the instruments. That was on a visual flight roll day, and it's just awful. So the pollution is just horrific. And what happened was that the governor and the state legislatures, uh, key people, had been bribed thoroughly so that the um, they had been bought off, so that the power power uh, companies could put in those plants without the required pollution controls. And the argument was that the employment was necessary for the people in those undeveloped areas and that the power was necessary. Well, it turned out that almost everyone that was employed was brought in from somewhere else because in those undeveloped areas in southern Georgia, the people didn't have the education to run the power plant, so they had to bring everybody in from New York. So the number of new jobs was uh, very few. I mean, maybe the guy at the gate was hired locally. But other than that, everybody was hired from somewhere else and brought here. And the power ended up being sold to Florida. (laughs) It was way over capacity for what was needed in Georgia. So everything was a lie. And to this day, those power companies have not put in their pollution controls. And if you look at the power companies up in, say, around um, Rome, Georgia, which is a little north of Atlanta, and you go on a day when it's cranking up full steam, you fly over there and and look at the stacks, you can't hardly see any smoke. I mean, it's working full steam, and you can see a, a wispy trail coming out of the smokestacks. It's gone in 100 feet. 100 yards later, it's, you can't see anything. I mean, it's nothing. But the ones, because they have pollution controls, so they have those electrostatic precipitators. But the ones in southern Georgia have nothing, and they are unbelievable pollution sources. Now, the Supreme Court just ruled um, yesterday that the EPA has the obligation to regulate that stuff. And so maybe we'll get some action on that stuff. Although, anyway, that's how it, that's how it happens with these things. But um, the news media itself, that does, those types of exposés don't happen anymore in the United States. I mean, you get some in the New York Times, but... It's just that type of stuff doesn't happen anymore. And even with the New York Times, the amount of things you don't get reported is phenomenal. There are some things, once you're into areas where you know that are the big things are going on and you wonder how many decades it will take 
before the New York Times finally reports it. How long did it take for the New York Times to report that the Wright brothers flew an airplane? A few years. They didn't believe it. Or they just didn't. They just. It took them a few years before they finally printed that the Wright brothers had flown an airplane. So it's a. Uh, you know, media blackouts are a very interesting thing, and the news media itself is shrinking. So what we have is sensationalism: sales, coupons, advertisements, and anything that will get you to buy those coupons, advertisements which is sensationalism, but serious news really doesn't sell very well. The other issue is that in the United States, there's sort of an anti-intellectualism. George Bush, of course, is the epitome of that, anti-intellectualism. And I don't mean this as a derogatory statement of him. I mean, he's, well, he's widely described as an anti-intellectual by both conservatives and liberals, and not in a pejorative sense. But he, he just is not the type of person who thinks things through the, it comes from a mentality of just sort of a strong man mentality, an emotional mentality. It, it, it's sort of a cross between the early cowboy portrayals of Clint Eastwood, where you know the fewer the words, the better, and sort of the strong macho Americanism. Whereas in Europe, you have sort of an intellectual tradition, where the subtleties that you and complexities that you talk about and get all enmeshed in. I'm not saying one is better than the other. The Europeans romanticize about the cowboy Americans to have this sort of anti-intellectual tradition and are amazed when we do go in and solve amazing things, do, do some interesting things. We don't have a good reputation in the world now. Over the last six years, it's really gone down. But historically, the United States has had sort of a fantastic reputation internationally. Uh, and so this anti-intellectual tradition of just sort of this cowboy mentality of going out and doing things sells quite well abroad, or had in the past sold quite well abroad. And when you add the anti-intellectual tradition within the United States, which, which is, from an intellectual's perspective, I consider myself an intellectual, it produces a, a hostile culture for dealing with subjects that I consider interesting. But nonetheless, it's an interesting culture. If you just accept it as face value, it is what it is. It nonetheless leads to a situation in which there's potential... Really strange things can happen when big events occur. 911, the news media can get so distorted. Uh, truly, it was a terrible event. But on the other hand, the way the news media can be manipulated to portray things in, in odd ways, such as weapons of mass destruction in Iraq when, in the, when they didn't occur. I remember using that as an example, and then we'll move on. I remember listening to, on National Public Radio, to the editors of uh, Jane's Intelligence Magazine and Jane's uh, Defense Magazine, the two leading editors of intelligence and military stuff, of the of journals that come out of Britain. And on National Public Radio, they were being interviewed. I believe it was by Terry Gross in Fresh Air. And this is pretty soon before the invasion of Iraq. And they were saying, there are no weapons of mass destruction. Anyone who really knows anything about the intelligence business will tell you, we got all that out in the last war. There are no weapons of mass destruction. There are no hidden weapons. There's no nothing. 
And they were asked, well, why is this hype going in about this weapons of mass destruction? And they just said, you know, there are political reasons for whatever things happen, but the stuff on the ground doesn't exist. And there's no ambiguity about it. Yet in the United States, we had the New York Times endorsing the invasion of the invasion of Iraq because of this issue of the weapons of mass destruction. So even, even intellectual papers here in the United States can be swayed by anti-intellectual anti abuses. And in European tradition, you get a little bit the opposite of that. The Europeans sometimes bemoan their own fate. Their intellectualism sometimes ties them up so they don't get anything done. But on the other hand, it's in here in the United States, we have uh, our own issues. But let's, let's move on. Let's go over to page 30. Now, let's see. what On your paperback version, what are we talking about here? It's the uh, same chapter further on, about in the middle of the chapter, about six pages before the end. And it's after a pause, uh, three dots, where it says, it took a dozen years for the truth to be made public. But when it was finally published, did you ever see that? Page 30. Page 30 on yours? Okay. All right. Uh, Jason, you have that as well? You've got it as well? Everyone's got it? Okay, great. It took a dozen years for the truth to be made public. But when it, finally, when it was finally published as a footnote to a... European history of the early spin years, I thought of the day at the mall. What happened was this. Three Russian cosmonauts had been in orbit the night of the October event, returning from a housekeeping mission to the moribund International Space Station. A uh, little after midnight Eastern Standard Time, the mission commander, a Colonel Leonid Glavin, noted loss of signal from ground control and made repeated but unsuccessful efforts to reestablish contact. Alarming as this must have been for the cosmonauts, it got worse, fa it got worse fast. When the Soyuz crossed from the night side of the planet into dawn, it appeared that the planet they were circling had been replaced with a lightless black orb. Colonel Glavin would eventually describe it just that way, as a blackness, an absence visible only when it occluded the sun, a permanent eclipse. The rapid orbital cycle of sunrise and sunset was their only convincing visual evidence that the Earth even existed any longer. Sunlight appeared abruptly behind the silhouetted disk, cast no reflection in the darkness below, and vanished just as suddenly when the capsule slid into night. The cosmonauts could not have comprehended what had happened, and their terror must have been unimaginable. After a week spent orbiting the vacuous darkness beneath the cosmonauts beneath them, the cosmonauts voted to attempt an unassisted re-entry rather than remain in space or attempt a docking at the empty ISS, International Space Station, to die on Earth or whatever Earth had become rather than starve in isolation. But without ground guidance or visual landmarks, they were forced to rely on calculations extrapolated from their last known position. As a result, the Soyuz capsule re-entered the atmosphere at a perilously steep angle, absorbed punishing G-forces, and lost a critical parachute during the descent. The capsule came down hard on a forested landslide in the Roar Valley. Vasily Golubov uh, was killed on impact. Valentina Kirchhoff suffered a traumatic head injury and was dead within hours. 
a dazed Colonel Glavin, with only a broken wrist and minor abrasions, managed to exit the spacecraft and was eventually discovered by a German search and rescue team and repatriated to Russian authorities. After repeated debriefings, the Russians concluded that Glavin had lost his mind as a result of his ordeal. The colonel continued to insist that he and his crew had spent three weeks in orbit, but that was obviously madness because the Soyuz capsule, like every other recovered piece of man-made orbital gear, had fallen back to Earth the very night of the October event. What do you see in this passage? What do you see in this passage? There's the um, there's the reality of the fact that time is going faster outside of the ca- or outside of the, the spin, um, and and so when that is introduced to Earth, we're so we have such an inertia of thinking that people, instead of thinking, oh, time must go faster, they immediately think this man is out of his mind and crazy. The disbelief of personal reports. Can we put it that way? Yeah. The disbelief of personal reports. Um, Joshua, what did you think? Um, I think... I think that, I mean, it obviously ties right into what you were just saying about the anti-intellectualism and, you know, not... I mean, the disbelief of personal reports is interesting because I think the fear that comes from people having not told the truth... What's that? I mean, the fear of people... Believing just of not knowing the truth, account is mm. of them not telling the truth, and but at the same time, <clears throat> I guess this kind of gets into you know you should still listen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is kind of the thing about the anti-intellectualism. I mean, even if they're not necessarily correct. There's still probably something hmm. listening to. Mm-hmm. That isn't, yeah. Carolyn, what do you think? Um, well, I think if it's just one man's opinion, they had every right to, you know, ignore it and say he was mad because um, there was no proper rationale. Mm-hmm. Know. Um, presented to them, so I think it was a very intellectual thing to do to ignore hmm. the um, his explanation. But I feel like they're in such a like they're not in a place where they can rely on things like it's just one man because they're in such a peculiar environment, and um, this is someone who his in some way had a lot more experience with that environment because he's been both outside and inside the spin. That, like, just because of the circumstances, like, perhaps in normal circumstances, maybe it's fair that the New York Times didn't believe that the Wright brothers had actually flown because people for years had been trying to, to, to create flight and had, had never succeeded. But this is such a peculiar situation that I'm not sure that you can rely on those tendencies. Well, that's true. I mean, um, in that case, I do think that it's 
good for them to try and test, you know, like whether or not his opinion could be accurate. And I think they do something like that a little later. Or they get more information about it and they discover that he's right. But I also think it's interesting that um, it takes them a dozen years for um, it to be published because it shows that they um, kind of take time to consider, a long time to consider the political implications before they actually publish something. And maybe that's part of what happened with the Wright brothers, too. Like, they took time to consider what would happen if they um, published that flight was possible. You know, remember Galileo was put under house arrest for eight years for saying, hey, Copernicus got it right. The Earth is not in the center of everything. Uh, the sun is in the center, and we're orbiting the sun. Well, was the Catholic Church just upset by that news? Some people, have, historians, have argued that the Catholic Church wasn't so upset by that news. I mean, if you want to say the sun's in the center, okay, no big deal. But they were really concerned about the loss of the way people would react the loss of control that would occur. Because it wasn't so much that Galileo was raising some new ideas, but he was going around and talking about it and saying, hey, this is really true. And they were afraid that people would die, that people would get, you know, people would riot, become disruptive, and their belief structure would fall apart. And when people's belief structure falls apart, their activities would go wacko. Now, what do we think about when we think about that in the United States. What's the one daily thing that the leaders are afraid of more than anything else that would be shook? You look at numbers every day. Stock the stock market. They're worried that the business would go, that the people would panic, that the people are essentially sheep that need to be herded, and that if you rattle them in any way, they're going to stampede, and then the stock market will crash, and the business interests will suffer. What about Fife Symington? Who is he? Never heard of him. He's the former Republican governor of Arizona. <laughs> yeah, he was the former Republican governor of Arizona for six years. And what did he just announce? Um, I'm not sure if this was the same guy. This might be the guy from like New Mexico or something. But there was some guy running for president who was from another, from a, one of those Western states who was like in the Clinton administration. He was diplomatic and he was on a Daily Show. Is that the same guy? No. no. But what did that guy do? Oh, he just announced he was running for president. Oh no! no. <laughs> this guy was governor of Arizona during the 1990s when the so-called Phoenix Lights occurred. Phoenix Lights were these huge unidentified flying objects, size of many football fields, huge. Tens of thousands of people videotaped it and watched it. And they stood up for like an hour. The lights were not there for like just two seconds and gone. They were like there for like an hour or more. And eventually, six months later, the Air Force had a pilot come out and say, they were just flares. <laughs> but it, it wasn't flares. They were huge, solid objects. I mean, huge, solid objects. They blanked out the sky if you were near them. And they had lights on the edges and all around them. But, you know, typical of the Air Force, they came up with a story eventually, six months later. 
Well, Fife Symington, the Republican governor of Arizona, right after that event, had a news briefing and said, we want you to know that we have discovered the origin of the Phoenix Lights. And then he, an, an alien walked onto the stage, and it was actually his chief of staff dressed up like a huge alien with a big mask on and saying, here it is, the origin of the Phoenix Lights. And then they took the head off, uh, and it was the governor's chief of staff. And he simply mocked everybody who had anything to do with it. Well, years later, last couple of weeks, he has come public and he has not apologized for what he did, but I guess his conscience got the better of him and he finally confessed that he himself saw the witness, saw the, the physics, the phoenix lights. He saw them up close and he was, it was without any ambiguity and extraterrestrial spacecraft. It was huge, bigger than a football field, the one he saw that was close, and he witnessed it with many other people. I mean, you're talking hundreds of people in his environment, but, you know, tens of thousands all over the Phoenix, looking at it and staring at it and videotaping it and watching it. And he said, this was not of earthly origin. This is an extraterrestrial spacecraft. And then people asked, well, why did you mock everybody in the 1990s? And why did you bring your chief of staff onto the onto the news conference in, a, in an alien suit and, and, and mock everybody else if, in fact, you witnessed it with everybody else. And he said, well, two reasons. First was he didn't want to get the Arizonans to panic because everyone was worried about an invasion from some other planet. And he said he wanted to calm everything down by ridiculing it. So he thought that was a good idea. And then he said, but also he was being investigated for voter fraud charges. <laughs> And he thought that wouldn't go well in his in, in a potential trial if he had to be, face a trial. He eventually turned out to be fine. There was he wasn't nothing, no big deal. He never went to you know nothing really eventful happened with those charges. But he he was nonetheless involved in some issues, legal issues that, that many public officials get involved in. Many are dropped, but, they, but nonetheless, you're still there. And he didn't want to be known as a flake at the time he was facing a prosecutor who was probably going to go after him and charging something, one, one thing or the other. So he decided to go in the opposite direction. But to save the good people of Arizona was his primary reason from panicking. Well, pretty much that's a standard response. You can imagine how much information is kept from from the public because of a fear of a, what the response would be. Whether it's the Catholic Church wondering whether Galileo's information be, should, be let, should be published widely, fearing that the public might riot and cause loss of life if they found out that the Earth, in fact, was not in the center and everything orbiting around the Earth. Or whether Thief Symington uh, his report, whether that would have panicked the Arizonans, and then, you know, what else would happen in terms of the United States, in terms of the, the, the broader public, or internationally, if things. Uh, just also last week, France, after 50 years of secret recording of UFO type of events, last week, over the last two weeks, they decided to end it all and to release publicly 
all of their documents with nothing held back. I mean, it was a huge cache of things. And an enormous proportion of them were totally unexplained. They said, we can't tell you what this is, but it was verifiable. It was there, recorded on radar. We saw it, multiple witnesses, military witnesses, the whole thing. It was as big as a house or, you know, big as a skyscraper. We don't know what it was. And it was just released. If It's better if you know, speak the French language because it's in French. <laughs> but the French website, this is, from their, this is from their National Space Agency. The information was released to their National Space Agency. The website was so overwhelmed that the website crashed for a number of days. It's still up now, but it's slow because there's so many millions of people accessing it, you know, French-speaking people. But the point is not whether you believe in UFOs or not UFOs. The point is that information on unidentified things was kept back from the public for an enormous amount of time, precisely because the French government didn't know what the, what, what the public response would be. So it's a fascinating thing. I mean, if that happens with France and so on, what else would happen? So um, with things. So what, what um, Robert Wilson is talking about here is something that's very, very common. New information that comes out is often squelched. Took him 12 years. It's also, I think, the significance of the 12 years thing is that they're talking about how they only have like 40 or 50 years to, you know, before whatever happens, they weren't really sure. And they spent 12 of it deciding whether, you know, they were going to tell people. Yeah, in and terms it's of. It's like the same thing with global warming. Like, oh, that's. That's a very good point. Three decades. And yeah, it's a very good point. They had like 50 years, according to the novel here, they had about 50 years to live, and they spent 12 of it sitting on it, wondering what they're going to tell people. That's taking a lot of responsibility for the future of humanity on your own shoulders. You're going to hold information back for one-fifth of the time that the humanity has left to live because you don't know if they can handle it. That's a lot of responsibility, as if... You know, and, and who put those people in, in such a position to be able to make those decisions? They just happened to be there at the time? And, uh, it's a very interesting thing. Again, now, I'm not endorsing any one point of view. I'm not saying anything about UFOs, for example. I'm not saying that you should think that they're real or they're not real. But the issue is public officials act in funny ways with regard to that, that particular topic. And recently in the news, there's been some stories about it. And it's interesting how long people sit on information for fear of wondering about what the public response was. And it's very similar to Galileo. That's another thing, and for a long period of time. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go over to another. Uh, Jennifer, did you want to say something also before? Uh, I mean, about this passage, I think that we... I started it out with talking about the not believing... Um, Oh, that passage is yeah. about the not believing stuff. Yeah. yeah, this idea of how to disbelieve personal reports, that is amazing. Uh, you can find somebody who's very credible who will be believed without any hesitation if she or he speaks about a mainstream topic. But as soon as they deviate off and talk about a non-mainstream topic, like an astronaut, a cosmonaut, who would be you know, the epitome of someone that the governments would rely on because they'd want to know that that person's going to be solid. They're sending the person up into space. 
Well, they believe everything that person reported, but if they go into an off-stream topic, suddenly, oh no. Then you really ask yourself, what's really wrong? Is there something wrong with the cosmonaut? Or is there something wrong with the people listening to the cosmonaut? Well, interesting. Well, let's move over to um, another aspect of denial. On my book, the hardcover, it's page 71. Let's see where you are. Um, It's in the chapter called No Single Thing Abides. And about five, six pages, seven pages into that chapter. uh, About in the middle of the chapter where it says, uh, No, in all honesty, I admire Jason Lawton. Did you find it? What page is it on yours? 79. Do you find it, Jennifer? Yep. 79. No, in all honesty, I admire Jason Lawton. Okay, let's read that. No, in all honesty, I admire Jason Lawton, and not because he's famously smart, He's one of the cognoscenti, if you'll pardon a $10 word. He takes a spin seriously. There are, what, 8 billion people on Earth? And pretty much each and every one of them knows, at the very least, that the stars and moon have disappeared out of the sky. But they, get, but they go on living in denial. Only a few of us really believe in the spin. N.K. takes it seriously, and so does Jason. What do you think about that? We're reading page 79. Okay. It sort of reminds me um, about what we were talking about in the Forever War, about how people are so willing to, like they want to be um, deceived almost. They're so they want to be deceived. To Interesting. Believe, um, to believe whatever the government tells them or to, to ignore... Um, disparages in information. Yeah. That's interesting. The people want to be deceived. That's in, that's your point. Yeah, you know, this deception doesn't work if the people themselves refuse to be deceived. But if they're active conspirators, people always think that the people who are holding the back the information are the bad ones. And the poor, innocent millions, billions of people else are, are the victims. But the reality is that Jennifer's raising, that's a good point. How could it really go on if the people didn't want to be deceived, if they didn't want to be treated as sheep. You know, um, to raise and go back to a, the since we're in science fiction, we might as well touch on this topic, to go back to the UFO type of thing. Who is Paul Hellyer? Paul Hellyer. Anyone know who he is? Well, he's the former defense minister of Canada. Big time guy. With a, his resume is as spectacular as you get. Well, he's come out recently, over the last few years, and stated point blank that it's time for the world government to just simply stop the news blackout and confess to everyone that they're holding back hordes of information about about extraterrestrials, unidentified flying objects that are now fully identified, and he should just people should just do it. He said he contacted a still active and very high-ranking general before he decided to come out with this, just to confirm it in his own mind. 
And this general was a general in the Pentagon, active, working in the Pentagon. And he contacted this general, very high-ranking general, and said, I just want to get this confirmed to make sure, before I go any further, is this stuff real? And the general said, Paul, if it wasn't you, I wouldn't be talking like this. But, you know, he was the former defense minister of Canada. People like that, you talk about. You talk about things with. And the general said, the entire UFO thing is real. We're holding back tons of information. And we've got the media in place. They won't report anything unless we actually tell them that they uh, they they will. Otherwise, we'll ridicule them. But the whole thing is 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 absolutely true. If anyone does it by themselves, they'll be ridiculed, and they'll you know they'll lose their shirts financially. But the whole thing is real, and and much much more, much more than you could possibly imagine. And we don't really know what to do with it and how long it will go on. But the last thing the governments really want to do now is just simply to spill the beans and say all of this, not just for the panic reasons, but for the whole situation of of, uh, how do you control all that information. And then I was talking to myself. I personally was talking to uh, a man called Mike Duvall, who was the former head of two... uh, he He was in the top five people of two White Houses, the Nixon and Ford administrations. He was a very close friend of mine. And I asked him, I said, Mike, what would the president do in situations regarding the UFO phenomena? And Mike said, Courtney, he would do the following. He'd go to his chief military officers and said, can you defend us? If there are UFOs, can you defend us from this? And if the military officers said, no, they exist, but we cannot offer a credible defense, then he would say, under no circumstances are this, is this information to become public until you have a defense, until you have an ability to put up a space shield and defend us from any type of extraterrestrial contact if we don't want it. It doesn't go public. And this is, this is my own good friend, Mike Duvall, top five people in two White Houses. The idea of controlling the information. But it goes both ways. And this is the thing that Jennifer was raising. The issue is it's not that people at the top control the information of the people at the bottom, but the people at the bottom want the information controlled. It's that active correspondence, that active participation on both sides. They don't want to be disturbed. People at the bottom don't want to be disturbed, and the people at the top oblige them by not letting them be disturbed. Mm-hmm. And it goes it goes all the way back to the beginning of time, this type of relationship. And we see evidence of it with the Galileo and the church and, you know, other things. But in a, occasionally, someone like Jason Lawton, Jason in this novel, goes the other way and says, he takes this stuff seriously and moves on with it. And the society ultimately relies on people like that. Let's switch over to another passage. I'm on page 109. And... Um, Let's find out what page it is on your paperback version. It's under the chapter, it's in the chapter Under the Skin. Under the Skin, about seven pages, eight pages in. Uh, And it's actually very close to the end, about four pages in from the end of 
under the skin, right before the chapter Celestial Gardening. And it's a passage that starts with, he shook his head. It's too late for them to leave us alone. That's page 127. 127 on your edition? Okay. Carolyn? Uh, Joshua, you've got it? Everyone there? Josh, you got it? He shook his head? Okay. You, you see? Okay. He shook his head. This is Jason. And uh, he shook his head. It's too late for them to leave us alone. We need them now. And we still can't rule out the possibility that they're benevolent, or at least benign. I mean, suppose they hadn't arrived when they did. What were we looking forward to? A lot of people think we are we were facing our last century as a viable civilization, maybe even as a species. Global warming, overpopulation, the death of the seas, the loss of arable land, the proliferation of disease, the threat of nuclear or biological warfare. We might have destroyed ourselves, but at least it would have been our fault. Would it, though? Whose fault exactly? Yours? Mine? No, it would have been the result of several billion human beings making relatively innocuous choices to have kids drive a car to work, keep their job, solve the short-term problems first. When you reach the point at which even the most trivial acts are punishable by the death of the species, then obviously, obviously, you're at a critical juncture, a different kind of point of no return. So what's Jason talking about here? What's Jason talking about here? Well, he's saying even before they were put into the spin, their species was basically doomed. Only everybody was able to ignore it pretty easily. And the the blame for the um, decline of the species was just because of the choices that we were talking about earlier, like choosing to drive a car to work. If everyone does that every day, obviously that's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Well, what does he mean when he says it's too late for them to leave us alone? Who is he talking about? Who's them? Hypotheticals. Hmm? The hypotheticals. The, uh, yeah, the hypotheticals, the ETs, the extraterrestrials. Now, Jason's talking to Tyler. He's a good friend, a doctor. And uh, Jason, of course, is in charge of the uh, space, the new space program that will help study the hypotheticals, the uh, extraterrestrials that did that. Um. What does he mean by it's too late for them to leave us alone? Why is it too late for them to leave us alone? Isn't it something like if they take off the shield something's going to happen. That's right. The time had gone on too long. The shield had been there so long. So if they turned off the shield, the planet would roast. 
bad stuff would happen. So it's too late. They have they're wedded now to the hypotheticals to the to the shield. If the shield turns off, they're in trouble. Well, I mean, they end up saying things like the shield is protecting the earth instead mm-hmm. of actually hurting. At that point, it definitely is. At that point, it definitely is. Um, what about this idea that our a lot of people think we're facing our last century as a viable civilization, maybe even as a species? Global warming, overpopulation, the death of the seas, loss of arable land, the proliferation of disease, the threat of nuclear or biological warfare. What's a famous person? What, what are some people now? Who are some famous people that are thinking those same ideas? Well, what is Stephen Hawking's, the famous physicist? What does he think about this? Would he agree with that or disagree with that? This is the famous physicist. You know, the one who has the disease, Lou Gehrig's disease. And go ahead. But he would agree. Have you heard recent, you know, comments made by him about this? He was saying that he did like that we would have to figure something out relatively quickly in order to save the planet or at least our species. Yeah, in fact, how far did was, was he willing to go to save the species? Anyone remember? Well, he's been arguing publicly for quite some time now that we need to make major efforts to invest in space travel because we're going to have to leave the planet. He's convinced that we're not going to be able to save the planet here and we're going to have to leave in order to save the species and that uh, we need to have the ability to leave the planet. Fascinating stuff from a very intelligent person. The real question is, we're seeing global warming start to happen. The issue of the death of the seas, the loss of arable land, all of these things are possibilities, and people wonder how much we can actually take. The nonlinear effects that happen with respect to just even global warming, let alone some of the other issues, are unpredictable. We have not predicted them, and they are unpredictable. We don't really know the full extent. And the possibility, not that humans would die off, but that civilization might collapse is a very real possibility. And, Joshua, you're absolutely correct in terms of time. Every year they're noticing an exponential rate of melting on both the poles as well as in Greenland. No one really knows how long all that ice is going to last. But that the last time all that ice melted, sea levels rose by 70 meters. 70 meters, just a few hundred feet. That means all of Florida, or no, not all of Florida, much of Florida would be swamped. All coastal cities, gone. Washington, D.C., New York, Houston, Amsterdam, European cities, sunk. We were strained just to save Katrina damage with respect to New Orleans. We still haven't built that city back. We're looking at a situation in which the governmental resources, if you talk about all major cities, coastal cities all at once, would simply be crushed, just completely crushed. And you're talking about a retreat of the population away from the coast towards the inlands. You're talking about the complete destruction of governmental capability to manage such affairs. In which case, you're talking about very big problems that uh, could point to the end of civilization as we know it, 
not that civilization wouldn't restart a few hundred years down the line, but that it certainly wouldn't just be business as usual from now on out until that time. You're talking about major changes. And so it's not saying that that is going to be real, but that the novel speaks to us because it's possible. It's least credible that you can think about it. Whereas, uh, you know, a few decades ago, it might have been hard to think about it, except within the realms of science fiction. Today, you can actually say, it's possible. Not that it's likely, or that it's inevitable, but it is possible. And the question is, how does this issue for the extraterrestrials, the hypotheticals, the big ones, how does this relate to us when, in fact, we might not be able to handle the management of our own affairs anyway? It's a question. So look, all of you are going to have your own passages, right, for Thursday. And make sure you finish the end of the book by Thursday because you'll get to the most profound aspects of this. And and the book, I, trust me, when we get to the very end of it, it has some profound implications for politics and society that are just, you know... Um, worthy of serious serious consideration so we'll see you then on thursday great